morning, Brennan. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing? Hey, hey I'm good. I've got my, um, I don't know if it's going to show up well on the camera, but I've got oh. my Chris Mickey Mouse mug uh, from when I was a child. Like, this has got to be at least at least some years old. Um, I'm not good at math this morning, but. Uh, <laughs> that, that is excellent. How are you? I, uh, I'm I'm doing well. I uh, I just I have a boring water cup. I drink a lot of coffee this morning, pretty early. I was up early. I I, I did bake some cinnamon rolls this morning, so uh, I was I was up 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 early with uh, with my daughter's help, Margaret Ann, uh, making a little special. Breakfast. That's awesome. It was fun. That's awesome. I got toilet paper at Kroger for Mother's Day, so you know we're all winning. That's a big find. That's it is. Uh, it is. Uh, wow, surprising. Uh, yeah, I that, only uh, had to fight three people for it. Yeah, and and uh, you can uh, deal with some scubala that way. <laughs> That's right. Coming to preview, uh, preview of coming attractions. Um, and speaking Brennan, of previews of coming attractions, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got something exciting coming down the pike. We've got two more weeks, uh, including today, of our study of Philippians. So uh, today and May seventeenth will be on Philippians. But what's happening on May thirty first? So we're going to take a week off for Memorial Day weekend. But then, what what are we going to be doing on May the thirty first? So May the 31st, we'll start our second round of Bible studies uh, for office hours. Um, uh, we've got a great response to the first uh, go through with Philippians. So we're going to try the other Testament. We're going to go uh, talk about the book of Job. Uh, so we're going to spend five weeks uh, discussing the book of Job. We'll start uh, by talking about the prologue, the first couple chapters, which has, which has the narrative story. We'll move into the dialogues between Job and his friends. We'll talk about the God speeches. And we'll wrap it up by talking about uh, the big, big questions of the book of Job. Um, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, where is God in the midst of, uh, of, of chaos um, and disruption? Uh, and uh, and what in the world um, do we do with the current environment that we're living in that is all disrupted and full of, um, uh, honestly, sickness and things that's, that seem to be falling apart? Where can, where can God be found in all that? So those, will, those are the big topics that we have. And we'll have some great uh, guests that will be joining us uh, from across uh, the country and uh, from the Theological Academy um, and people who, who love and serve the church, um, just like the folks that have joined us uh, through this study of Philippians. So I'm so excited. And Chris, uh, thanks for wanting to do this again. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be great. And I think we talked about it earlier uh, on the phone this week. And uh, I, I have sort of a, a, either a very basic understanding of Job, uh, like the surface level reading, or like I sort of throw my hands up and I'm like, what is going on with this book? So I, I feel like I might not be the only one uh, who feels this way about Job. And uh, so very much looking forward to our study of Job. Um, and, and again, like, like you said, it's such a timely time for us to be studying uh, the book of Job because we're, many of us are now wrestling with these big questions of where is God in the midst of uh, really hard stuff? And how does our theology um, either adapt or not adapt to those realities? And I think mm -hmm. that we see some really interesting stuff happening um, theologically in the book of Job. So again, don't miss it. We'll start that study May 31st. We'll get out some, uh, some more details uh, about, about our guest lecturers, about our, uh, the description of the class and all of that. There will also be an opportunity to register for the sort of advanced level with additional readings and videos. Um, so stay posted for that, but uh, May the 31st. Um, I already see some people making comments in Facebook, but if you're, if you're viewing, if you've already logged in, uh, thank you so much for checking in, telling us where you're at, where you're joining us from. Uh, and uh, we are so grateful that you're here this morning. Um, so Brennan, we're talking about the, the largest portion of Philippians today, Philippians mm -hmm. 2, 19 through 4, 1. 
where we, we learn about Paul, we learn about some of Paul's colleagues, uh, and we, we learn uh, about, about Paul's view of his, um, maybe we might say his privilege or his former accomplishments. Um, and so it's a, it's a really uh, important part of Philippians. It's a lot of ground to cover. And uh, we are going to be joined momentarily by Shively uh, Smith, the Reverend Dr. Shively Smith, um, and maybe we can talk about her while she's not on. That seems totally appropriate right, uh, right, right. for us to do. Well, so uh, Shadley Smith is a, a wonderful biblical scholar, excellent preacher and teacher. Uh, she is someone that uh, Chris and I both know from her time at uh, Emory uh, University um, and uh, where she got a PhD in uh, New Testament studies. Um, she uh, has written a book on uh, First Peter, um, which is interesting. We had two First Peter specialists on uh, two days in a row. She's working on some really interesting new work on metaphors and uh, models um, and uh, the way that that works in the New Testament. So we're actually going to ask her a lot of questions today um, uh, about some of the topics that we're covering in uh, Philippians chapters, chapter 2, especially about these kind of models of Timothy and Epaphroditus, but then also the model of Paul in chapter 3. And we can ask about how that relates to the idea of imitating Christ. Um, which right. is throughout the book of Philippians. Um, so we're, yeah. we're excited to have her on. Uh, and uh, she's at the Boston uh, University School of Theology, um, where she is a professor of New Testament there. Um, so yeah, we're really, really looking forward to it. And uh, she has got like several things lined up today. She's on some other, like another teaching call this morning. So uh, we were glad that she was able to fit us in, but she'll, she'll join us when she can. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll we'll just have her have her jump in. Uh, Shively and I both uh, wrote our dissertations under uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, uh, who is a uh, just a lovely man, uh, uh, at, at, who was the uh, Woodruff Professor of New Testament at Emory University, and many people have probably heard of him, uh, uh, who are who are watching today with us. Um, well, what do you say we we just sort of hop yeah. in uh, to this this part of Philippians? Hey, um, there and, she is. Oh, she, she's coming. We just, in. She's coming in. We were just introducing Dr. Hey, how's it going, Shively? Great to see you. Hello, so good to see you guys. Oh, it's, it's thank so, you so thank much you for being that. with us. Thank you so much. I'm, apologies, I was doing things for the cathedral. Oh. So, <laughs> no, uh, here. <laughs> yeah, we, we are I mean, just why thrilled that why... you joined us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were, you know, we were just pining away in your absence. Um, and we're, you know, we've got a lot of bitterness that we can work out later. Um, but no, Shively, thank you uh, so much, so much for being with us. We know you have a busy morning. Um, so we did just do sort of a, a, an introduction to you. We promised we didn't say anything. That's not true. Um, only about your brilliance uh, and, and your teaching abilities. So um, Although we, 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 I do want to ask one question before we jump off, which is, Shadley, do you, you remember our trip, our, our, our kind of junket with Carl Holiday through Turkey? Yeah, that amazing experience. Is, it was so, amazing. It was amazing. One, one thing I wanted to just say is that you're, you were the one that taught us about the Sebastian and Aphrodisias, uh, Af, um, uh, right? And uh, that was an amazing talk. I still use that uh, in whenever I teach about the Roman Empire and so on and imagery and Judea Capta. You know, it, was, it was really, really wonderful. But what was your favorite uh, moment of that uh, trip through Turkey? What was my favorite moment? Do you know my favorite moment was Ephesus? Oh, like, that was amazing. Like, that was so amazing to be in this site and to be able to see where the library was and to really begin to, so I yield, still use our pictures from that as the way to help students begin to do the work of imaginative, of imagination and reconstructing 
what that world actually looked like, right? So not what our cities look like, what did their cities look like? That was something that was so powerful to me. The other piece that I loved about that was really the journey. I mean, I think the the bus ride with all of us being together and we were sharing and moving between being, you know, nerds in the biblical world and then having fun and listening to music to really recognize that um, as scholars, most of us were students still at the time, that there's a way in which we are real human beings and we're not just, uh, that stays with me. And I try to pass that on to my doc students even now. Yeah. yeah I'm like, so what do you like to do for fun? Right, right. <laughs> Does that exist? I just, yeah. I, I have to I have to say like hearing you guys talk I'm I'm having this moment of feeling like the little brother in a family of like <laughs> that was that was back in the day when we were able to take family trips and we you know like that was before dad lost his job like cuz I yeah, didn't get to do that like trip that. I didn't get to go to Turkey oh, no, I didn't get any oh. of that Oh no <laughs> the bottom just, fell out You know the, the the only thing I did was, and this was actually really sentimental and great, was I helped Luke Johnson move his books to the the monastery in New Orleans when he yeah. retired. Uh, and so we we loaded up a U-Haul and had six Krispy Kreme donuts as we drove down to to New Orleans uh, wow. and gas station coffee. It was it was classic. Um, living living but, uh, the dream. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right well so so shyly uh, again oh yeah thank, thank you so much again for joining us it's just so fun to have you here and uh, uh you know you you uh are someone that whenever you speak and teach i'm, I'm always uh on on the edge of my seat listening so but we want to begin by asking you two uh kind of big broader questions we um usually begin by asking people uh it just in general like what are your theological presuppositions or at least a, a couple of them some things that inform your reading of the bible um that's 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 usually where we start. Would you mind just kind of giving us some, some tips? Kind of what, what do you usually start with? Yeah, I mean, so I always tell people I tend to stay in my lane. So I always start with uh, those New Testament texts. Um, one of the presuppositions that I'm always working with is that all of these writings uh, in a large degree are insider writings. Um, and so these aren't written, these are not written um, necessarily in the spirit of trying to uh, convert or make or present new information to people who have no clue of the proclamation of the good news of the, the characters, the apostles, the prophets, Jesus, like these are all written um, with the expectation that people have a clue <laughs> about <Yeah>. it, <laughs> right? Uh, which is a big deal for me, I think, because of sort of my um, original or my original place being initially in um, sort of more um, a missionary-based evangelistic sort of circles when I initially, as a little girl, so, um, you know, the pastor's kid and that sort of piece. And so that has been a real eye-opener for me as is to shift to imagine that, you know, John 3.16 actually wasn't written to, for you to go and say, for God so loved the world to someone who has no idea uh, about the son, but that these are, everybody already has that story. So that's one thing that I, um, that does something um, that I presuppose uh, second, the second thing that's related to that is I tend to presuppose that in large part a lot of the um, a lot of the audience, the intended audience, represents people that are managing what it means to uh, live on the fringes in some ways. And I mean, this also has to come from the fact that I work quite a bit in the Catholic letters these days, and so um, there's all the more uh, um, striking for me there. But uh, while 
Paul's writings, the writings do talk about people with particular kinds of resources. The overwhelming majority represent um, um, groups of people that do not have power or access to resources. They're more clients than patrons. They're more uh, slaves and servants than the master class. I mean, so there, there's a real way in which, what does it mean to read this play, read these writings from place, from a place of the absence of power and resources, um, rather than from the place of power and resources and privilege. And that allows, that does a lot in terms of humbling me, I think, <laughs> right? And recognizing that some of this stuff that they're talking about in terms of relationships, in terms of how you relate to each other, how you're relating to your own environment and to your own kinship, that stuff is hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. I experience it every Thanksgiving and every Christmas. Then I get into a play to go home, right? So, so, so uh, with the absence of that sort of uh, transportation and technology and movement pattern, how much more, how much more difficult uh, are some of the expectations and propositions and proclamations that are being made in the writings to people to think about themselves differently in relationship to each other, in relationship to their communities and their kinship groups, in relationship to the society and the local community that they may have been navigating for generations. Mm -hmm. yes, yes. Yeah. Thank no, that's you. great. Thank, thank you. And we also, we already mentioned this a little bit before you hopped on, but if you could just tell us a little bit more about your work, um, particularly in the general epistles or the Petron epistles, the, the, the first and second Timothy or first and second Peter, or just your work on biblical metaphors and models more generally. Um, and then we, we promise we'll actually hop into this text on Philippians. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, uh, my base work tends to be in um, Petrine letters, First Peter um, was my first book. Second Peter is the commentary I'm finishing up right now, thank the Lord. Uh, and so um, I love looking at um, uh, what we call the Petrine discourse period. So I mean, the Second Peter, what I've been able to do a lot more, looking at the apocalypse of Peter, looking at um, sort of the way in which Second Peter in particular seems to capture all of the traditions. So Second Peter, you end up hearing about the transfiguration. So we get these signals back to the gospel tradition. You hear about Paul. So you get these signals um, to Paul's literature showing up. You get to hear about the prophets sitting alongside um, the apostolic authority and witness. So I've really um, have enjoyed working on Second Peter and treating it as what I'm calling um, the sort of gateway text in the canon and the way in which it allows you to look um, uh, backwards at the, uh, uh, at, the, uh, at the generation, at the traditions before, and also becomes a great way of thinking about what's happening in the apostolic fathers as they're thinking in relationship, not just to Peter, but to Paul in the gospel tradition. So, I mean, that's the work that I do there. Related to sitting alongside of that is my work dealing particularly with hermeneutics and metaphor. So this year, I'm actually a scholar teacher for the Calvin Institute. So I got a scholar teacher grant in which I'm Congrats. On thanks. So I'm working on exploring our interpretive metaphors with Howard Thurman. Uh, and oh, and yes. our, our, yeah, our interpretive metaphors with Howard Thurman, which is really about getting us to begin to think, this is related to what we just talked about, Brennan, the visual. What, mm -hmm. How do we visually represent our hermeneutics? How does the biblical text itself mo present models or metaphors for interpreting that we 
uh, should be retrieving and paying attention to. And then I use Howard Thurman to help us do that work. So um, these are sort of two parts of my work that are, they can stand separately and at times they overlap. The last thing I'll say where you can kind of see all of that coming together is um, this week, um, I was actually one of the contributors for Working Preacher because first Peter, oh, yeah. so I get, I ended up getting tagged for that. Yeah. And so in, the, in my first Peter entry for uh, today, I think, you'll see where this sort of, I merged my work with first Peter, also with this work on hermeneutics and metaphor. So that's a really great uh, accessible representation of what my work is doing these days. Very cool. And yeah, that sounds amazing. So I'll really look forward to, to learning from you uh, with that project. And uh, if anyone out there listening has not read uh, Howard Thurman, Jesus and the Disinherited, please pick it up, uh, uh, grab it, and also check out uh, Shadley's work on Working Preacher to help us get uh, get get a way to uh, apply it in, in, into our own context and, and also biblically. So thank you again. Uh, and uh, we, we, so let's go ahead and jump into uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 19 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Um, uh, this is, uh, uh, like like Chris said, a lengthy kind of part of the text, um, and there's a lot of different things going on in this section. Um, Chris kind of summed it up uh, uh, in the syllabus by saying it was, it's, a lot of it's about examples, um, right? And, and it starts with these two big examples, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, and uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of questions to ask here, but um, it seems like, like, a bit of a segue and even in like one of the study notes that I looked at it said like yeah this is kind of a throwaway section like a little like segue or something and Shadley you're saying no so Shadley what, what does this have to do with the kind of the meat of, of Paul's letter? Yeah, I think actually, so I, I, yeah, I mean, some scholars have said that. I think that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> not that I feel strong. <laughs> yeah, not at all, not at all. <laughs> I think that this actually, this this section 219 to, uh, right up to 3-1 really represents what this whole letter is about, which is really about well, kind of, again, here's my theological presupposition, in-group relations, right? So right. Paul is not only just talking, I mean, here, really, it starts from, I would say, I would actually say, say this starts right at mm, probably oh, am I looking at the right place yeah so right more like 217 mm -hmm. and 18 as well but this is setting up all kind of relationship dynamics it's Paul in relationship to the Philippians it's Paul Timothy and the Philippians is um, Paul now talking about Epaphrodites in relationship to his own community, the Philippians, and then what all of that means. I mean, so like, how do we, all of these different relationship dynamics are in play and, and, and they could be intention, but Paul's presenting them as non-intention. In fact, he's making a really hard plea to the Philippian Jesus group to not, in fact, hold something against Epaphrodites, which is he was sick. He wasn't able to do everything he was supposed to do as, you know, the person that you sent to me. But he did his job well and give him honor. I mean, it's this is this is the crux of what it means to be a loving community, a community mm. that's complex, that's nuanced, has many relationships um, uh, that are in play at the same time. How do we have multiple relationships, different power dynamics at play, and they don't clash, they don't have to come into tension with each other, they can actually complement each other. Huh. Wow, that's that's really deep, and the, you know, kind of going along with that idea of the one mind that we saw in chapter one, but then also comes up again here in chapter three, like not having one set of beliefs necessarily that all match up, but having this one kind of mind of 
humility and love towards one another that is lived out and acted out, right, with all of these kind of, like you said, complicated dynamics and, and trying to keep those things uh, in tension, but also kind of managed with one another. And I mean, it, uh, to me, it strikes, it was really striking to me to read these kind of really uh, loving, encouraging things that uh, Paul is saying about the Philippians, but also about Timothy and Epaphroditus. But then also Paul notes his own anxiety about these tensions, right? Mm -hmm. And like, it, there's all this stuff about today that, that brought that brought up in me, like COVID. I mean, the fact that like, I mean, just to recognize it, it's Mother's Day, um, and Shively, happy Mother's Day. And, you know, but, but, but there's also this, uh, um, you know, real se severe anxiety today, I mean, just in general, but also about distance. And, you know, I can't go see my mom today on Mother's Day. Yeah. To recognize this is kind of always there for a lot of people, right? There's a lot of people in the world today who uh, Mother's Day is both a joyful thing, but also a painful thing about loss and separation. And that is, does produce anxiety. I mean, today, um, uh, I mean, I, I was reading a Facebook post by Bill Brown, my colleague here in Old Testament at Columbia, who, whose mother passed away a few days ago. But then he also wrote a post saying that, you know, he was grieving about the loss of his mother. But then he read, he read an article about Wanda Cooper Jones, um, Ahmaud Arbery's mother, and just thinking of the loss and the separation on on this day, uh, uh, kind of piled on top of all of the loss that people are experiencing just throughout this, this context. And that, that that does produce anxiety in us, right? But Christians often are told, like, don't feel anxious, right? Or like, or it's bad to feel this way. You're supposed to be triumphant, joyous, only have joy. And Paul does say be joy, joyful here, but he also says, I'm full of this anxiety too, right? Um, so, I mean, I, it just struck me that it's like a recognition that it's okay to feel this way. It's okay to feel out of control right now. It's okay to feel uh, questioning about things. It's, it's okay to, um, to feel consumed sometimes with worry about all this stuff that's happening right now. Um, and there's maybe a way to balance that with kind of rejoicing, but also not overwhelm one with the other. I don't know. Yeah, and I think, so this really goes back to me talking about the ways in which I think the biblical text models for us this. I mean, the, mm, yeah. that not only can these things be held in tension, but the way in which Paul uses this to actually name that, right? So he mm. names the, 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 what didn't happen with Epaphroditus instead of pretending like it did. He names his anxiety um, as a way for the community to hold that and to do something constructive with it, not something destructive with it. So we're not, he's not naming because he wants them to think that he can't, he, he, he can't, um, he can't hold up as uh, their spiritual father. The Epaphroditus is incapable of doing it. He's naming that so that they can say, oh, okay, and we can all hold this together. I think that that's really so powerful now with the social distancing, the ways in which, how are we constructing our faith communities um, and our relationships to hold our truths, to hold the real concrete experiences we have uh, so that we can, we can continue to live as a community, so that we can find joy and flourishing there. That's one of the other reasons why I love this, that our faith is big enough to hold the, the proclamations of joy, but also to hold the proclamations of anxiety, of failure, of not doing something, and then still finding a way for all of us to live. Yeah, I love that. I love that. One of the comments on Facebook uh, said, asked the question, is it okay to be, so it's okay to be situationally anxious, but know that ultimately God has it all in hand. And I think that that kind of adequately sums up that we can hold these tensions and so much of, you know, Christian traditions that I've come from and that I'm familiar with is Brennan and I were talking earlier, either be stoic, like yeah. imagine like there's, there's no emotions or be a sunny day Christian all the time. 
Right. And we see here in Paul, like a lot more, you know, this is Paul the human and, mm-hmm. and uh, this is Paul wrestling with anxiety and um, being separated from people that he loves and in communities that he loves. Okay. Another thing that, that I love about this section of Philippians um, is, is that, that Paul mentions these two coworkers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked the very first week of this study about Paul's colleagues and coworkers and how it's easy to think of him as this like, brilliant genius solo genius out in the world and paul all you know it seems to almost always if we're if we're reading carefully point to other people who have either been his partners or his helpers and it makes me what i was thinking of this morning was who you know what pastors people who are leaders in congregations you know asking the question are you doing the same thing that paul does do you point to the people who who are your companions who are your colleagues um, do you, do you point to the people that you couldn't get this work done without in your life? You know, um, we, we know the practice of in scholarly monographs, writing the acknowledgements at the beginning, but what would it look like for us to be a, a people communities of faith that are rich in these acknowledgements that are name dropping, not the people that we know, but the people that like, I couldn't do it without, you know, these people in my life um and and to to sort of tear down the solitary genius or the charismatic preacher or the you know whatever else that 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 this this work of ministry is far more collaborative far more community-based than we often experience or often think of it yeah i love to think of paul as trafficking in community and relationship building like that that it is it, it is actually not his tendency to go out there solo it's always his tendency to bring along and or to go along with i mean if you start reading acts you start realizing it's not always him who's leading right um from luke's perspective so it's really it's really great to think about paul as being communal people oriented and he is a person that has companions and he accompanies and is accompanied in his yeah. work um, yeah. that, that, especially from the scholarly endeavor, so right. that can be a little humbling for us too. Right. <laughs> right. Well, well, in the way that, the, you know, these are the parts of the letters that people skip, but the endings of Paul's letters where he's, he's name dropping and the ways that he's sort of interweaving relationships and saying, hey, I know this person and this person knows this person and everybody's saying hi. And again, uh, we live in, we, we, and in the, the Hellenistic context was this way. The first century was this way, very competitive. Um, and so Paul could have gone about it in a different way. And there, to be fair, like there are places where Paul is very controlling and, and claims that people was his own, but he can also be very collaborative. And I wonder what it would look like for us, um, not to network just to sort of get our, get one step higher, but to, to, to do the sort of weaving of relationships that, that we see in Paul's letters of, this person knows this person and I know this person and, and we're all in this together. Um, I just, I just love, I mean, again, it's, it, it's not deeply theological in the sense that it makes its way into systematic theologies, but it's so practically theologically significant um, that I hope we don't skip over it. Just one last piece to that, Chris, I would push, I would ask you guys, is it just weaving relationships or is it care tending relationships? Mm. Right? So, I mean, there's a way in which there, there's connection, but there's a certain kind of care tending and right. maintenance of the relationship that happens when you're bringing each other along. I, quite frankly, I would say this moment right here is to me a care tending relationship. We're all colleagues. We were all in school together. I wanted to jump on just to be with you guys. <laughs> like, yes, we haven't done anything together. And so, 
um, what, what does it mean to see our work as believers and as a community being not just about interweaving, but care attending? How do we, how do we repair, strengthen the relationships that are there? Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and and just to that comment, you know, just the the beginning of this introduction, and then we can move on. But uh, when Paul holds up Epaphroditus, Paul holds up Epaphroditus and Timothy, he says all of these other people were seeking their own interests. That's right. Uh, and what a just a great model of this is what it looks like to do that caretaking is to seek the yeah. in, to genuinely seek the interest of others, the upbuilding of others. That's the language of First Corinthians. I know I'm blending, but. Uh, yeah. We'll take it. I mean, right. it, it strikes me on, on Mother's Day, um, which, you know, of course, men and women should be uh, uh, taking part in the work of care tending, but it's often gendered in both the ancient world, I think, but also in the, in the, in the contemporary world um, as, you know, masculine work to kind of go out there and like found things, do things, win things, build things. And then like the feminine work, you know, is kind of like seen as kind of secondary or lesser or, and often not accounted for in the economy. Like, I mean, our GDP is going like crashing like crazy at the same time that we're all working like crazy and like we're working like crazy because we're doing this work that nobody's ever accounted for in the economy because it's usually been categorized as female labor right which is often not counted for right now you know so in any event just thinking about the care tending work like i mean a lot of pastors a lot of uh, professors a lot of people in positions of power don't think of that care tending work as like key or, or central right or it doesn't count like how does that count in like even the, like the way that my work gets counted you know like often like like where does it come up in my review you know like I, and i think my dean and my president are starting to push that way and some other institutions are too but often it's like you know the kind of uh building up your your colleagues or something is just seen as like eh, kind of secondary nothing work um but right, the, right. How, how central that is you know i agree i agree yeah. And if we can, I just want to one second plug that, that late, you know, uh, the, the caretaking work, the feminine masculine work. Uh, next week we have Beverly Gaventa joining us. And one of the first books of Beverly's that I read is Our Mother, St. Paul. And she, she goes about looking at um, Paul and gender and, and the ways in which Paul cares for his communities, not just in a typically masculine role, but as a, as a mother, as a, as a caring mother. So you don't want to miss it. Um, and, and uh, you know, a, a, another way to think about Paul, and we're going to talk about Euodia and Syntyche uh, with her. Um, but, okay, let's, can we, yeah. can we move to, to move, a next yeah. section, um, which, is, which is where Paul's language gets a little strong in uh, three, yeah. one through three. Um, <laughs> A little bit strong, Shirley, and uh, you know we're he's, we're he's talking about high. caretaking. Uh, we're <laughs> you know all of a sudden Paul's not taking care as much as he's taking down. So what 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 do we do with this uh, part part of the letter? The dogs, the yeah. the evil workers, the mutilators of the flesh. Um, Whoa, yeah. what's going and on? Ju and just to say, I mean, uh, just to say this, this has been so strong, a, a shift that some scholars will even say these are two different right. letters, that this one got yeah. shoved onto the other one or something. Um, I know a lot of people now disagree with that. They say, well, now it, it might just be a shift in something, but just to say the, how, how strong this is. But Shadley, what do you, what do you do with this? Yeah, so, I mean, I was going to actually say that, that, you know, this is one of those places where we think that uh, is that the question gets raised, is this a composite letter, right? So is, in fact, this is something of another, of another letter. I, I deal with the final form as we have it, so we have it all put together, so let's deal with it. Yeah. I think the biggest piece for me that we end up seeing is, uh, this is like the Paul for me of Galatians, the Paul mm -hmm. who's in 
um, conflict with clear opponents, right? So he is he has a and so it's very rhetorical, right? So that he has very rhetorical. He has he has um, this naming metaphors even of what he's doing that's toward the negative that are really toward his opponents. And then you've got Paul's sort of naming of the things that um, he sees as good. So for instance, you get. Uh, dogs which for him unclean evil workers that's the opponent type label but then you get him using sort of alluding to clean and good um, i love this you don't see it in the you can't see it as clearly in um the english because you have to see it in the greek but the way he talks about the cat catatome versus the paratome, paratome. So, so catatome, mutilation versus paratome, circumcision. So, I mean, in the Greek, you see this sort of juxtaposition that he's yeah. playing with that you can miss right here. So Paul, this is really Paul being rhetorical, setting up a, a, um, a us versus them, a me versus them, which again goes to this whole in-group dynamic that I think is in play here in Philippians uh, in totality. I mean, I could keep going on. In the um, they put stock in the flesh. I and you do not put stock in the flesh. We worship the spirit and have honor in Christ. I mean, there's just, there's constant juxtapositions that are happening in different ways. Yeah, there's, there's so much in fact that, um, we had Eric Barreto on a couple of weeks ago and, and he, we were talking, we were talking, another Emory guy, um, uh, we were talking about whether or not Paul's opponents are, are even, even physically, like real, or if these are almost rhetorical, we can't know. But this language where we have the, the contrast with peritome and katatome, um, but also the word for evil workers in the Greek sounds a lot like the word for missionaries. And so um, Paul seems to be playing with this. Um, and and we, whoever these people are, if they're real opponents or false opponents, um, he's clear that they're, they're, they're leading the Philippians astray or that their way is leading them astray. Um, and uh, and he says that we are the circumcision, um, uh, which you know I I, uh, I was with a, a course of study class a couple weekends ago, Shively, and um, and I said you know the the funny thing about reading Paul is that so much of his writing has to do with male genitalia, and we never talk about it, right? We just sort of automatically <laughs> translate circumcision into something that's less like you know squirmy. Uh, but you know, this is, he's saying that we, you know, we are, um, what we are the, the true circumcision in this spiritual sense, right. um, uh, which, you know, maybe we are the, we're engrafted into God's purposes. We, we've been, um, included in God's covenant. I don't know what we, what we think about this spiritual circumcision, um, and, and what that, what that means, uh, either yeah. in the first century or, uh, in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, I find, so a couple of things. I find this becomes a great place to think about, which is something that you would see like Howard Thurman picking up on is sort of the, the importance of the spiritual, religious experience or the spiritual or right. the mystical dimension of Paul that sometimes we sort of go brush over because we're moving. We want to talk about the practical Paul or even the situational Paul. But there is something to the fact that he's intentionally juxtaposing uh, pneumaticos versus um, flesh here, right? Yeah, and so yeah. what, um, what that means. I'll tell you one last thing that's really important to me here is in three 
starting in 3-4, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as a loss because of Christ. So that's important on, on um, at least two levels. One level for me on a personal level is um, sort of in my Pentecostal um, background side, I grew up hearing this like being recited in worship and service as a way to talk about what it means to be a believer and to not wear any of these titles. Right. And um, and so to talk about humility in a real way. So for me, there's a, I always have to wrestle with the way in which I was conditioned to hear this as what it, what it means to be um, humble, which at times is called real cost real tensions uh, for me when I think about what it means to, you know, have this PhD now and actually right. to be sitting as a person who, you know, not a Pharisee among Pharisees, but you know, a teacher <laughs> of the text. Uh -huh. So there's a way in which sometimes I think that this can be dangerous um, in, if you don't pay attention to why Paul is doing this, because you might miss the ways in which what we are doing in the world is what is vocationally what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to lean in as right. teachers. So we're supposed to lean in mm -hmm. as um, a judge or as an attorney or as a servant or, or as a, a service person. Like that is the work of um, that we have been graced and called to do to serve the community and the world. Thurman would say, it is the work that your soul must have. It is the sound of the genuine in you. So I want to be very careful that we don't allow that to, uh, X out or mitigate or diminish the sound of the genuine that some of us have really struggled to live in and are struggling to live in even now. Yeah. But yeah. On, on the second level, I would say this is very important for us as scholars because this is the place where we go to start trying to build um, the profile of Paul outside of what we get in Acts too. So right. on the historical reconstruction level, this is very important for us to understand historically who was Paul? What did Paul actually do? What was his status? What were the groups, um, the collegium, the alliances, um, the identity markers that are really historical to him? And I wanna, um, I wanna hold that up too. Now, is it rhetorical? Does he just construct this out of nothing? Or is this rhetorical based on um, the facts of his historical profile? That's something that we discuss um, quite often in our field. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think uh, this is, I mean, this is a place where, where it's important for us to consider the rhetorical dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's important to consider the, the, the possibility that, that there's, there's, some, there's some parallel between what Paul says about himself in 3.7 and following right. and what he has said about Christ and the sort of the Christ him in chapter 2. Um, but but it it does present some problems um right. and uh and wondering i mean one of one of the things that i introduced the first week was paul the jew i said you know paul never stops being jewish um and so it's not that he's emptying himself of of being jewish right it's not that he's um he's saying that this this doesn't matter necessarily um so what what is going on? Because if we read like in Romans nine through eleven, Paul's got a deep love for the Israelites and for for his uh, siblings in Israel, as he refers to them there. Um, and and so what does what does it mean that he is he's regarding this as nothing? Um, these these accomplishments and whether it's rhetorically or theologically, 
how how do we make sense of it? And, and maybe um, I'll let you resonate with that. I'm just gonna just sort of when I read these this text, it seems like he's getting more and more narrow, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he's saying I was circumcised on the eighth day. Great, okay, that's sort of standard for Jewish men to be to be circumcised on the eighth day. Um, and then he gets even smaller that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, um, as to the law, Pharisee. Hebrew? Right? A, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Does that mean he speaks Hebrew? He can read Hebrew? Use it liturgically? I mean, no, we don't know. I don't know. Yeah, just wondering. I yeah, go ahead, Shirley. So, A, this gets debated what that means, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, Hebrew among Hebrews could actually be, he's uh, sort of um, talking about his particular um, lineage in, in comparison to others. In one way, on one level, it also could be related to learning. What do you have, um, um, Chris, on this? Yeah, so again, I, I think I had to mute myself because my dogs are barking. So um, yeah, I, 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 think the dogs. That, I think that there's, um, I, I think that there's, uh, there's definitely some debate. I mean, I tend to read the Hebrew of Hebrews as, as um, being an insider among insiders. Um, you know, the, there, when I teach this text, um, there's this wonderful article by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring, yeah. uh, which talks about how how people always want to be a part of a more inner or smaller ring and uh, and how you often get to that inner ring and you realize you don't even like the people that are in it, but it's just the process of you know, being exclusive or excluding other people um, that really is at, at hand. And, um, and so I think that Paul, for me, that, that's what I think Paul is doing here is saying, I got to the inner ring. I got as, as, as narrow as I could possibly be. Um, and I found out that it was, I gained nothing in doing so. And I think that rhetorically it's important because Paul seems to be dealing with communities that always want to get higher. They always want to get in the inner ring. That's their inclination. That's their desire. And Paul is saying, I've done it. I've been there. And it, it, is, it is worthless to me. Um, and not those, those status markers and not certainly not Israel or the covenants, but that desire to get into the inner ring is what is scuba. That's what is, is empty. Um, that is what is or, or refuse waste or excrement. refuse, yeah, right. Um, uh, and 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 that you know all in comparison to gaining Christ. Yeah, I think the other piece to put to to advance that even more is to think about the inner ring as being moving into the inner ring as being a place of moving towards more security, more safety, more power, more resources. So again, if we sort of like I said, where my theological location, if we imagine that more of these people are sort of Further out doesn't just have to do with status. You also right. become the your life becomes less secure. So it mm. is actually um, uh, a, a life lived with less resources, less power. So Paul's actually pushing on the, that social reality to say, yeah, it's not just status, but all of the security, all of the safety, all of the ways in which you think. Um, power is really here. That's actually not where it is at uh, mm-hmm. at all. So I want to push, want to push that to think about not just status, but we're dealing with social realities. We're just de- dealing with concerns of life and death, concerns of resources, concerns of access, concerns of security. 
I see this a bit like as connecting to Ecclesiastes, a book that I, I love and work on as an Old Testament, you know, Scott, and, you know, thinking about how like this is this kind of quest in Ecclesiastes for like the good life. Like, how do you find happiness? I tried to do all these things. I like became, like, you know, chapter two of Ecclesiastes. I became awesome. I built all this stuff. I tried to dominate people. Um, I tried to own as much as I could. I tried to drink as much as I could, and it didn't really work, right? What, what worked only was finding joy in the midst of the trials of life, which sounds a lot like Philippians actually. And like, you know, thinking about vanity of vanities, all is vanity is kind of the lesson, you know, that's a little bit like Scubala, right? Um, this kind of like the, the stuff you think is going to fill you isn't really going to fill you. What's going to fill you instead is trying to really fill others and like you know, empty yourself into your life and into, into the community and into like the work that you've been given to do in some way, right? That that's kind of the fulfilling thing. I mean, it, it also makes me think a bit just, like in terms of in, inner outer, um, Shadley, what you were talking about, like the way that power works and the way that this, these texts get used, like, because mm. Christians often use these texts to other other people. I mean, uh, Paul Nanos has an article that's in our, uh, uh, like, uh, sort of our, our folder that people can access uh, for this class if you sign up. Um, but Paul Nanos has this article where he says, like, Christians throughout history have used this text to say, hey, Jews call Gentiles dogs, so Paul's just returning the favor, right? So then Christians use that as a way, since John Chrysostom, since like the fourth century, of like t saying, well, then Jews are dogs. Um, and like, you know, they did it first. Um, and then, then it's okay. Um, but instead, uh, Paul Nanos points out that like, a lot of people called each other dogs, and actually sometimes it was, you know, related to Artemis, like the goddess of the hunt, and, you know, like, it just, it could mean lots of things, um, and it, yeah. Jews don't use it in particular to refer to Gentiles. Gentiles use it of each other. They talk about cynics as dogs, so it's like a philosophical yeah. thing, so it could right. be anything. We don't really know, but just that how it gets used, and Paul's kind of angry. I, I say this as an outsider to New Testament studies, but when you all are talking about rhetorical like in part the, we emphasize that to mean like he doesn't mean this literally but also be careful how we use these things right yeah, rhetorically right yeah. um, but also yeah, oh sorry no no go ahead brennan oh, i was just gonna say like and also the kind of the christian jewish uh connection here just it's, i think it's so important uh, as a, someone who focuses on old testament studies when i hear people from new testament studies saying hey paul doesn't ever say like he doesn't say that i have left judaism where I am no longer a Jew. I didn't call it scubala, like, you know, refuse or whatever, uh, excrement, and then reject it. Instead, I just said, these things don't get me what I want, but that doesn't mean I'm not who I am. And that's also maybe why Paul's saying to the Gentiles, also, you shouldn't stop being who you are too. Like, it's, that's what Christ did. Christ made it okay for you to be this, whoever you are, and to join in and to worship of the God of Israel, um, and, you know, and not reject your identity, your heritage, your culture, your language, your, you know, um, and, and just like that Paul's not rejecting his, the fact that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying, that's great for me, but it's, it doesn't get me anywhere ultimately, but also like, that doesn't mean you, so it, I, I say all this because it, it made a lot of sense to me when Chris um, uh, and other folks have suggested that the, um, the, the Judaizers that Paul's always angry at might be like, cultural appropriators. They might be Gentiles who are claiming to be Jewish, but not really join the Jewish community or like, you know, they're not like actually becoming proselytes and like joining Judaism. They're just like, kind of like, like, like Christians that have like kind of the Passover Seder, they kind of appropriate it for themselves, but then tell other people that that makes them better than them. Is that a little bit what's going on here, you think? I absolutely think what you just said, actually making the connection to Ecclesiastes is, Ecclesiastes is helping me to read it differently, to think about what it means to really see this as a, sort of kind of a, a wisdom discourse within the Jesus mm -hmm. group, 
three spinning. So once you hit verse seven, yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. So I mean, the, the, the analysis, um, Jewish wisdom discourse that's tied around this proclamation of Christ and resurrection. And the section ends right at, at, with that claim in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So I it's the first time I actually have always dealt with it as rhetorical, as inside or outside in group, but to think about this actually being a sort of wisdom, uh, a, a wisdom retelling, retooling that Paul is doing mm -hmm. also because his Judaism is intact for him. This is the logic and the symbolic world out of which he is talking and reasoning. It uh, makes total sense. So thank you for that. And I, I also, I think it's, um, the, you know, Shiley, thanks for reading those final verses in this, this section about, because I think we also can't have this conversation about Paul and Judaism uh, or, or Paul and, and these opponents without bringing up the resurrection of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is, this is something we're, I'm teaching a class right now at, at First Press on the resurrection, and we just started that. Um, but for Paul, it, we often, I don't, I don't know if we often really grasp just how significant that was for him. And, and uh, a metaphor that, that I've, you know, I think actually I was in a conversation with Luke Johnson about this, that, you know, Paul is not in the business of rearranging furniture on the Titanic. No. Um, Paul, pa Paul's understanding of the world um, with a crucified Messiah now exalted as the Lord um, and the resurrection, which sort of inaugurates this new age, means that he's all about the transformation of the world. He thinks that God is in the business of, of transforming it. And so um, often when we talk about Paul and Judaism, it, you know, it's not like Paul lived his life as a Jew and found like it didn't work. Right. Like, like we often do with Luther, like Luther, um, Martin Luther was, you know, really dissatisfied with the spirituality and, and the form of religion that he experienced as a monk and had this conversion experience. It's not like Paul, um, found that Judaism became bankrupt. It's that he became convinced that this crucified Messiah was actually the Lord um, and had come to share in the life of God. And it called everything into question. Um, and there's this strong break with everything leading up to that resurrection experience. And so this is what Paul's saying at the end of this passage is, I want to share in that resurrection. I want my life to be aligned with that resurrection reality. Um, and, and therefore, it's because of this resurrection that all of this former stuff is, is, is scuba, um, is, is excrement. Um, and, and I, I want to know, I want to live into that reality of Christ. So can we try this on? Is it a strong break? Or is it he gets through the resurrection and this um, the 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 experience his own experience resurrection he gets a new lens or frame by which he's able to now understand yeah. uh, these uh, sort of convictions of election of monotheism of Torah of of what and where is the temple right of of even land our relationship to the land our relationship to flesh it does the proclamation of Christ as uh, crucified, resurrected, ascended, allow, give him a sort of new frame, right. but which is able to see everything um, differently. Right. You might call it revelation. I always get nervous just throwing out revelation because I think it, it's so loaded. But does that, does that kind of go in line with yeah. what you're saying, Chris? Yeah, or something? I, yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I think uh it's 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 lenses it's it's bodied it's you know i mean i think the 
that Paul's language of imitating Christ, of, of considering interests of others, like this is all, you know, it's easy for us to, you know, think about Christianity as it's just in the brain um, or maybe it's just in the heart. It's what you feel. But I think Paul, you know, in his, in his, in his letters gives us this sense that it's your perception of the world impacts how you treat other people. It treats how you sort of embrace the world or don't embrace the world. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, it is, it is, uh, Paul is forced, I think, um, by the, by the convictions of the resurrection, by this crucified Messiah who is now Lord, he sees the world entirely differently. Um, and, uh, and it, it, it seasons everything. Um, I think. I think so too. I think that that's so much hope that, that our pro that this proclamation claim makes a demand on us to see the world differently, to treat each other differently, to think differently about our relationships and how we orient ourselves um, to the world. I was talking to, I guess, someone who's kind of more of a seeker who had maybe had some church hurt, right? Um, in in um, her background, it was sort of trying out what it means to come back into, uh, you know, a sort of believing community. And uh, for me, it was really saying, you know, that's part of our proclamation is sort of thinking about how do we treat each other differently and imitation you said imitation and how this shows up here that language is so important to Paul and Paul's writings that we are we are participating in a faith that has models that we can look at we can imitate that we can um, that we and we ourselves can be models of what it means to really be this all-encompassing new proclamation so just my little thing there i love this part to me there's yeah. a lot of hope here hmm. That's, yeah. that is deep and uh, i you know this this makes me um think about your work on models and and uh metaphors but also about imitation um i read this one little thing i forget who wrote it but it was uh saying you know paul often talks about imitation and imitate me because that was a part of the hellenistic you know cultural context of learning and pedagogy but it was kind of like downplaying it as if, as in like, well, today we have better ways of teaching things, right? I mean, you know, we kind of just give knowledge and then people have the knowledge and then like they know we don't need to do this kind of like, you know, wasting time by like uh, tutor, you know, getting people to follow us around and, you know, do, you know, kind of shadow us and, you know, uh, and enact what we're doing. And it's kind of this apprenticeship model that's outdated medieval you kind of, and, and I was reading that thinking, I mean, my goodness, you know, we, we of course we learn better by example that I see, we, you know, we, we can hear someone say something, but if they don't actually do it, then who cares? It's a bit about the kind of the faith question with Paul, like does faith mean an idea or does it mean like what you actually do with your life? Yeah, I mean, I think for Paul, it's very visual. I mean, so this is the piece. I love these um, metaphors on top of metaphors. For him, faith and being in the community has a visual. It has a look. And he's trying out as many images and, and giving as many portrayals as possible, not because anyone sufficiently captures it, but it offers an opportunity for access to to what I would talk about as theological, Christian mm -hmm. theo theological imagination. Um, and that even the way in which we think contemporary cognitive sciences now right. show us that we think in metaphors and in mm -hmm. images so when you look at a book metaphors we live by by Lakoff and Johnson you see this you see you see Sally Maffei talking about this and her metaphorical theology the power of this I mean I think this isn't something that just happened Paul was on to something for what it means for us to not only just proclaim in head and in lip service this sort of of theological what you said Chris transformation but how do you actually do it really you get 
as many images that provide theological possibilities as, pop, as you can, and you explore them, you propose them, and you keep going, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And like Adela Yarborough Collins has an article um, about the Philippians hymn and how she thinks that maybe Paul wrote it. I mean, whether or not that, I mean, I don't think her argument rests on that, but that Paul is kind of a theologian, which in the ancient world meant like someone who composes things for um, like praise, maybe even of an emperor. But like, right. and it, it, we have this thing uh, at the end here in verse 21, chapter three, verse 21 of like, uh, all things end up being subject to Christ. Which you know, some people kind of question and, and have some theological problems with the kind of the dominance language or the language of kingdom and so on. But still, like the the idea that he's Paul is taking this like um, image or metaphor or uh, image of the emperor, the one to whom all things are subject. But then mm -hmm. Paul is also saying, and the kingdom that is produced by this kind of loyalty and this kind of faith and this kind of leadership and and is 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 the, it's the image of Christ. It's it's people who give of themselves and who don't look for their own honors or privileges or, and they look to really share with the whole community. And so then this all goes back to Shadley to when you pointed out that Epaphroditus may have failed in his mission, but Paul is saying, I'm going to lift you up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, honor and shame language is running throughout this, right. this whole section. So right. it shows up not to take us back to that, but it shows up at to what, two, 29, welcome them in the Lord with all joy and honor such people because he came close to death for the work of Christ. All right. Well, uh, so sorry to everyone. Um, that was my computer. I think my internet access that was that kicked us kicked us out. Um, so I hope others join us here for the last few minutes. Travely, can I ask you to go back and, and, and repeat, like just kind of catch us back up on that stream of brilliance that you were unfolding for us? was saying that I think um, honor and shame language is running throughout this section and is very important. I mean, I think so if we look at 229, when um, he's sitting there talking about Epaphrodites and talking about um, not shaming him, basically, he says, welcome him then in the Lord with all joy and honor, which means without shame, uh, such people, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for those services that you could not give him. So the reason why um, honor and shame is very important here is one, because you gotta understand the, co the context of Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony. It is known for having quite a lot of Roman military veterans. And one of the mantras of the Roman military is that you fight until the death, right? So to not continue fighting until the end to not complete your task is very shameful. You see this again um, in um, uh, philosophical schools, especially within like stoicism, that you know that you're that you are to finish and complete your task. So Paul's pushing honor and shame on one level to push against a cultural norm and convention that's normal that no one would think of that the obvious thing to do is to deal with um, the shame um, that that he is shameful. He's saying, no, no, there is honor even in that in that moment of him suffering. But then when we go here to the end in chapter three seven, we get explicit shame language that shows right. up in verse nineteen to opponents. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship, which is always very interesting. Um, to me, citizenship, commonwealth would be the way um, you could deal with that, is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chris, this does exactly what you're talking about. This transformation of how we, of what is normal, what is conventional, how we relate. He shifts 
where the honor and the shame goes because we're in a world where honor and shame has to go somewhere. Right. I mean, that yeah. is the, uh, an orienting social value. And you see, Paul, uh, shifting what honor looks like and shifting what shame looks like, shifting what honor produces in terms yeah. of action and commonwealth and relationship and shifting what shame produces in terms of action and commonwealth and community and where, uh, and where we should be in that right. equation. Yeah. And even just in that, in, in 21, uh, three, 320 and 21, uh, we see this, this language of humiliation and glory, which both of these are, these are shame. These are shame and honor. These are, these are going in that register of language, those cultural um, and, and social understandings. And Paul is turning it. I mean, Christ's glory is, is not independent of Christ's shameful death. Um, and uh, Christ's glory, the way in which he's going to subject all things to himself, um, is, is not separate from the way in which he lived his life, the way that he died. And, and so Paul is shifting these categories uh, that, that do, they, they play in the register of shame and honor, um, but, but in a very sort of nuanced and complex way, because, because Paul, you know, for for Paul, I don't think that the Jesus's glorious re, uh, return is somehow going to ignore the way in which he died. Um, uh, that those two seem to be held together so tightly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I was going to say, for me, here's the here's the so what. If Paul's playing this game, then then. Uh, and uh, for me, my theological orientation, this becomes an invitation for us to do that now. So what, what are the conventional, traditional categories of honor and shame, insider, outsider, good, evil, that our society, right. our institutions are functioning off of, that we fundamentally need to do the alley-oop on and switch up? <laughs> yeah. 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 Exercise a certain sort of theological and moral courage um, right. to say, yeah, th- those are actually, th- you know, that group is actually not shameful right, right. It, you know right. The, that group is actually not the one without honor that's the group that is with honor like what where in our world and in our locations should we be doing this work that right. paul, that paul is doing in this section yeah i love mm-hmm. that yeah and yeah it seems to me too like there's a connection here between um i mean there's a kind of an individual versus group um uh, thing here like the you know striving for yourself and like you know your own identity like you know paul like i'm, I'm the best i'm gonna i'm gonna like build up honors for myself mm-hmm. but then you can see how you know the christ's community or even the way it's, it's translated here citizenship um citizenship. Uh, but, but yeah but you know and, and also there's the little note at least in the nrsd <laughs> this is commonwealth yeah. right which yeah. that's a very different like what, i mean for for modern modern conception right when we think of citizens we think of like my own like rights and uh you know what i get from it and my, my own identity or sometimes like what i brag about you know like oh, i'm a citizen of the united states but but you know the thing is like the commonwealth um that we are a part of thinking that way seems to kind of uh, suggest a different you know model for like my role in this entire thing um whereas paul's opponents seem to be kind of thinking of themselves and building themselves up Etc. Yeah, it's poly. The Greek there is polytuma, which I think I think what the NRSV is trying to get at, um, particularly in that note, is to get us to like exactly what you just said, Brendan, to get us thinking from to get us to move from thinking in our modern terms of terms of citizenship as an individual to citizenship being very much a part of this dyadic society, the society in which it's all group collective identity, right? So it's not my it's not my individual. It's the relationship hmm. of us all to each other um, in this. Commonwealth in this common um, 
in this common society, in this common uh, province, in this common city, in this common space together. Wow. All right. So, Shively, we've already taken you three minutes longer. It's 1033, and I'm sure folks are, you know, starting to get anxious about going to worship. I want to, I would just want to hold up a few comments. I saw at least two people comment that you taught them Greek. Um, and so, uh, thank you for doing that. Um, and uh, another person said you were a breath of fresh air. I don't know what that says about me and Brennan, but it's also very true. Um, you always, always are a brush of fresh air. Your joy is is always apparent, as well as your critical reading, your your helpful reading. And so, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. And I know we could go on for hours talking about it, but it's just been such a pleasure uh, to have you on this morning. Thank you for having me, and blessings to everyone as we are still in this Easter season and we're celebrating the work of mothering that has happened in all different forms and different Amen. ways in the world. Blessings to everyone. Thank blessings you. Thank to you, you Shadley. Thank you so much. And uh, bye to everyone. We'll see you again next week where we have Beverly Gaventa. So join all us. All right. Then. Thanks, everyone.